0: So why believe? The question we're wanting to answer today is, why is God so anti-LGBT? And I phrase the question like that. It it sounds very controversial, it sounds almost accusatory, And and I phrase it like this because the truth is, it's a very difficult topic to deal with. It's hard for us to talk about these kinds of things. Just in case there's someone here who's from another planet, LGBT stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. And there are other letters you can add to the acronym. The, the, the idea is, when we, when we bring this up, there's so many things that come to the surface. It, it brings up issues of gender politics. It, it brings up issues of human sexuality. It brings up issues of morality. That brings up issues of identity. It's it's a very difficult thing to to talk about. It's it's a very emotive issue. It's hard for everybody, but for some people, it's excruciatingly painful to talk about these things. There may be some of you here today, and as I bring these things up, you're feeling nervous. You're going, oh no, am I going to be exposed? Oh no, what are these people going to believe about me? Or you're getting angry. Oh no, what do these people believe? about me or believe about my friends or my family that would identify with LGBT. And I understand that. I understand that because we, we can sometimes get these things wrong and they are difficult to deal with. They are hard for us to know how to deal with these things. But I think it's really important as we deal with these issues to remember the most important thing is that when we're talking about the LGBT question, it really is about people. We're talking about people. People who are struggling and questioning, which is what we would expect, because all people do this. The Bible says in the book of Job, chapter 5, verse 7, people are born for trouble as readily as sparks fly up from a fire. There are also people who are made in the image of God. It's not as if LGBT people, people who identify this, are some sort separate species They're made in the image of God. They're image bearers of God. The scripture says about humanity in Genesis 1.27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God defines what humanity is and all of us are humans made in the image of God. They're people who share our broken, sinful human nature. All of us are broken. In fact, the the reality is all of us are sexually broken. The only human being who wasn't sexually broken was Jesus Christ. The scripture says, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. These are people for whom Christ died. The scripture says clearly Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so, when we're dealing with this issue and we're using the scripture to deal with this, we are our, our Christians at Servants Church. We, we take the Bible seriously, we take it at face value, and therefore we're going to teach from the scripture what God says about these things. But we, we want to remember that we're talking about people here. This is not about politics. This is not about, this is not about cultural wars. It's about people. Now, what I want to do is, I I really want to sort of, my my main thing I want to get across to you guys today is that, that really in answering the question, why is God so anti-LGBT, is really to kind of say that it's not so much that God's anti-LGBT, but that God sets forth what he's done in Jesus as a better hope for human sexuality and for human identity. This is what we want to present to you. We want want us to understand as Jesus followers that, that the gospel gives us our identity. The gospel defines how our human sexuality is meant to be expressed. We want to understand this. And when we talk about the gospel, gospel simply means good news. It's the good news of who God is and what God has done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we mean by good news. It means talking about the reality of God's love. And so there there should be an A5 sheet of paper near you that kind of lays out an outline so you can kind of keep track of where we're going. But basically I'm going to give you three main things about God's love and how they speak into this issue of LGBT. The first is this, is that God's love is what defines his moral authority. His moral authority. When we talk about any issue of morality, it's not our morality that's the authority. It's not the church's morality that's the authority. It's God's moral authority. And his love defines his moral authority. So when Paul's writing to this church in Thessalonica, this Greek church, these are people, it's an amazing story. These are people that Paul had gone into this area of Thessalonica with his team of missionaries. They had talked to people about Jesus. They had started some Bible studies together. They were only there for a matter of weeks, and so many people became Christians, they started a church there. Oh, yeah. And they started this church in a matter of weeks, and these people are, are so hungry. They're being changed radically. I mean, if you read the beginning of the book, it's great. Paul says things like, hey, when we, when we taught you the word of God, you received it not as the word of man, but as it is the word of God itself. These people are like, give it to me. I'm hungry. I want to know what this God through Jesus says. They wanted to know. And so Paul starts this church, and this church is, is growing, and it's hungry, and, and they love each other. There's really great things happening in this church, but they're newbies. They're brand new to this stuff. And so he's wanting to make sure that they understand what it means to continue to follow after this God who loves them so much. And so he starts in verse 1 by saying, listen, he says, Finally, brethren, we urge you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ that you should abound more and more. Keep growing as you're growing. (laughs) He says, just as you receive from us, notice how you ought to walk or live your life and to please God. And to please God. In other words, what he's saying is it's God's love that's meant to motivate us and our desire to please him. So so when Paul's saying you ought to please God, he's not saying here's a condition on your relationship. You have to please God or you don't get into heaven. You have to please God or that God doesn't love you. No, he's saying because God so loves you, because God sent his son to die for you so that you could be acceptable to him, because God has initiated and provided a relationship with you through Jesus, because of that, the motivation should be, I want to please God. I want to love Him back. In fact, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he he kind of says a similar thing about his own life, his own walk. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, he says, Christ's love controls us. Speaking of him and his missionary team, he says, Christ's love controls us since we believe that Christ died for all. We also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. In other words, listen, what Paul wants the Thessalonians to understand, the Corinthians to understand, what God wants us to understand is that God says, listen, the reason I call you to live a life pleasing to me is because I so love you. (laughs) It's because I want you to understand and believe that the standards I set for you are out of my great love for you. And so if you want to please me, then meet those standards because they're for your good. And so Paul's saying this is what our motivation is. The moral authority flows from this great love that God has for us. Therefore, he says, here's where I draw the line. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, he says, To these Thessalonians, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And and this is really important. We don't want to miss this. Paul's basically saying we as the apostles, as those sent by Jesus, we've given you authoritative commands. In fact, the word commandments there, it's a word that's a military term. It's the idea of you've been given an order and there's, no, there's nothing to do but to obey it. And so he's saying, uh, we've given these authority of, authority of commands through the Lord Jesus. In other words, the apostles who were sent by Jesus are speaking in the authority of Jesus. Therefore, it has to be obeyed like we would obey Jesus. This is really important to understand. Because God's love has been demonstrated in... The sending of his son. When we want to know, okay, you know, what's Jesus about? When we, when we identify Jesus, what do we say? He is Jesus, what? Christ, right? Jesus the Christ, really. Christ is not a surname, it's his title. Do you know what that title means? God's chosen king, Messiah. He's king. The Bible teaches that we can't identify Jesus as Lord except by the work of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the work of God's Spirit working in us is for us to identify that Jesus is king. That we follow him. That his authority is what matters. And so Paul, when he's writing to the Thessalonians, he's saying, you know, we're, we're commanding you. We told you, here's how you need to please God. And we, you're, you're hearing this from the very authority of Jesus himself. And that authority is a testimony to God's love. This is what John 3.16 means. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but an everlasting life. Believe what about him? That he's Lord, that he's king, that he's worthy to be trusted and followed. Now if you drop down to verse 8, Paul says something that's that's quite sobering, but it's it's needful for us to understand. Paul says, therefore he who rejects this, that is the standard that he's going to lay out. He who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Do you understand what Paul's saying there? Paul is saying, listen, Paul's saying to reject what God says is to reject God's love. If God says to you, listen, if God says to you, look, I love you, so take this medicine. And you go, I don't want that. It's going to be bitter. I don't want to take that medicine. And God says, listen, you need to understand, I'm only giving this medicine because I love you. I love you. Take this medicine. And you say, no, I will not take that medicine. You know what you're rejecting? What you're saying is, I don't believe that you actually love me. I don't believe that I can trust you. That medicine is good for me, so to speak. This is what we're saying. And these are very sobering words because really what Paul's wanting us to understand is this this moral authority, this moral standard that God's going to lay out, it flows from his love. And so to reject this is to reject his love. It's to say, God, I don't want your love. I don't want you in my life. Let let that sink in for a second. And right now, I'm, I'm really, in my mind, I'm thinking about those of you who would profess to be Jesus followers but would want to kind of say, you know, God doesn't judge. And because we all fall short, it, what we do doesn't really matter. You just said it yourself, John, everyone's sexually broken. Why do we need to make a big deal about LGBT, or for that matter, for any kind of sex outside of marriage? And you're tempted to go, well, you know, that was written for them. We're in a different time. It doesn't really apply to us now. That's not how the scripture deals with these things. You know, the Bible's really clear, and it's, it makes all of us a little uncomfortable. The Bible makes us really clear that, you know what, these are the standards that God has set forth. Paul is not writing as, and hey, I'm just kind of a teacher or a rabbi, and, you know, I'm kind of a lecturer at university, so let me give you kind of my opinions. No, Paul's saying, I'm speaking on the authority of Jesus to reject what I'm saying is to reject God himself. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? But it's important for us to realize this, especially those of us who are Jesus followers, because it's crazy for us to go, I believe in Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, as long as it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable about my sex life or my cultural opinions. That doesn't make any sense, does it? If we believe that this God who's created all things has shown himself through the person of Jesus and said, here's the standard that I want to show you out of my love for you, if we believe that, then we have to say, even when it's uncomfortable, I need to submit to that standard. So God's love defines His moral authority. It's something we need to remember. Now, we get into verse 3, and we get to the second bit, which is that God's love also gives boundaries to human sexuality. It's out of love that God sets these boundaries. So when Paul says, listen, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, I'll define that word in a minute, that you obtain from sexual immorality. When he says sexual immorality, it's one word in the original language. The New Testament was written in Greek. And so the original Greek word for sexual immorality, that phrase is pornea. It's where we get the word pornography. And it is an all-encompassing term that has to do with any sex outside of marriage. Now, you need to understand something, okay? It's really important for us to get this. When Paul's writing this, this is radically countercultural. cultural mm. yeah. It still is. <laughs> well, it's, that's, the whole, that's the point. It's radically countercultural. cultural that, that basically he's saying something that would have made especially men feel radically uncomfortable. Let me read to you a quote from a, a New Testament scholar. Who writes about the sexual practices specifically of men in the first century when Paul would have written this? Paul says, Listen, in iniquity, I'm sorry, not Paul says, the scholar says, he says, he writes this, in iniquity, or antiquity, sorry, in antiquity, a married man was not considered to be immoral if he was having sex with his household slaves or even prostitutes. At the same time, there were those who thought that the purpose of sex was solely to the creation of heirs. Somehow, a combination of both views. Now, it was acceptable for married, a married man to sleep with other women and men. Can, a married man can sleep with other men as well. As long as he had a wife at home who was providing for him with legitimate heirs. Now, this is important. Because it's important to recognize that when Paul's writing this, that you need to abstain from sexual immorality, he's calling non-Jewish people... who are are now believers in Jesus, he's calling these non-Jewish people to the Jewish, or you might say, the Old Testament standard of sexual practice. That's what he's calling them to. Now we know this because of Acts chapter 15. We mentioned this a little bit last week, but here's what Paul, or I'm sorry, what uh, actually James writes in Acts chapter 15. Listen. James says that the uh, non-believers, I'm sorry, non-Jewish believers in Jesus, Gentiles, are to obtain, uh, abstain from food sacrificed to idols, abstain from blood, from meats of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. He says if you do, you do well to avoid these things. Now, understand the context of Acts chapter 15. The mainly Jewish church is realizing there's a lot of non-Jewish people that want to follow Jesus. Even though Jesus said that would happen, they didn't think it would happen. (laughs) And so all these non-Jewish people want to follow Jesus. And so they're going, okay, wait a second. There's all these Old Testament laws that we even as Jews have a hard time following. So how are these Gentiles going to follow these customs and these laws that we have a hard time keeping? How's this going to work? Because there were some of them that said, you have to make them become Jewish. They to get circum- The men have to get circumcised, then they keep all the feast days. It's got to happen, man, if they're going to follow Jesus. But what they decided was, no, this can't happen. This is nuts. We can't expect them to become culturally Jewish before they become Christians because Jesus wants to reach people in spite of their culture. So what do we do? Does, does that mean the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore? No, the moral law still can, still matters. This issue about the kinds of animals they eat, it's about really not stumbling people. So when he talks about um, not eating things strangled, the Old Testament laws forbid that for, for the Jews to eat meats from strangled animals. And so they, they knew if the Gentiles did that, the converts did this in front of Jewish people, they'd go, wait a second. You shouldn't eat that kind of stuff. It would stumble them. So don't stumble those people. Choose not to eat that way. And then for Gentiles, the Gentile believers who became Christians, used to go to these temples to worship in several ways. And one of the ways they'd worship was to get the meats that were sacrificed at those temples, buy it really cheap, and go home and have a barbecue. And so basically it was this idea, well, that's kind of, in a sense, worshiping these false gods. Don't, don't do that either. So that's the, where those dietary rules come in. So you can decide if you want to eat blood sauces or not. That's another issue. <laughs> I think it's gross, but you can decide if you want to eat it. <laughs> But, but, but this other issue is really clear. When he says sexual immorality, he's meaning this. How the Old Testament defines sexual immorality. If you want to look this up, read Leviticus chapter 18. You know what you're going to find? You're not going to just find you can't have sex with the same gender as you. You are going to find that. But you're also going to find you can't have sex with animals. Yep. You're going to find you can't have sex with your wife when she's on her menstrual cycle. You're going to find out that you can't, have, you can't have sex with someone who's too closely related to you. In other words, incest is banned. And there's all these laws that, listen, this is, this is important, that the church, the first followers of Jesus are saying those things still apply and those things are all encompassed in the phrase sexual immorality. So that when Paul, going back to 1 Thessalonians, when Paul says, this is God's will for you that you abstain from sexual immorality, that this is something that you don't get involved in. He's saying that's the standard that he's holding to. Now the reason I bring this up, because there's no way we can deny, if we're gonna say, if we're gonna be Christians and say we believe the Bible, there's no way we can say that any other kind of sexual activity is acceptable that goes outside those lines. But it's even bigger than this. Because now that we are Jesus followers, now that Christ has has come, God had the Son, has taken on human flesh and lived this life, and we have the final revelation from God about who He is and what He wants, now that we have that, the standard goes even higher. Because Jesus Himself said if you look at a person to lust with them, you've committed sexual immorality in your heart. It goes even higher. Also, because the Bible says, and Paul lines out the stuff specifically, it's amazing how specific the Scripture writes about sexual activity among believers. It, it, it talks about the romantic beauty in ways that would, and in and, 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 and descriptive terms that would make most of us blush in the Song of Solomon. You read that as descriptive about uh, sex between a man and a wife, and you're going to blush a little bit. Unless you only read it with your wife. And even then you might blush a little bit. <laughs> But, but also, in the New Testament, Paul talks about, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about sex between married people. He says, listen, you know, he says, a wife's body belongs to her husband. A husband's body belongs to your wife. Now, the first part, the Greeks would have gone, yeah, of course, yeah, wife, she's for me. My wife, women are for my pleasure. He, he says, no, don't you get it? Your body is for your wife's. In other words, your sexuality is not for yourself. It's for your marriage partner. So, by that definition, you know what it means? selfish. Selfish sex is sexual immorality. Mm. In the marriage bed, when you're like, you have to please me, I don't care if you like it or not, marital rape is sexual immorality. The standard is so high, you know what it means? All of us are sexually broken and we need to walk in repentance. Abstaining from marital sex for, for a reason that's other than, you know, medical reasons or a, a woman's monthly cycle or um, prayer and fasting. Uh, refusing to be together. That's actually sexual immorality. I told you you're all gonna feel uncomfortable today. <laughs> I'm saying this, guys, because listen, we need a vision... We as Christians need a vision for sanctified sex. You know what the word sanctification or sanctified means? Sanctified means set apart for God's purposes. That's what holiness is. It's the same connected word. Holy is to be set apart for God and his purposes. Sanctification, the big word that's used here, describes the process by which God sets us apart for his purposes. Now, we're talking about the second point of that God's love gives boundaries to human sexuality. The boundary that God sets is this. Sex is meant to be expressed one man, one woman, in marriage, for life. That's the standard. Now, none of the standard is ever given to us to condemn us. It's given us to free us. A fish can say, I'd be more free if I could be on land. But if he gains that freedom, what happens to the fish? Dies. (laughs) Boundaries are how we experience freedom. So God in his love says, listen, sex is such a complex thing. Why we desire the kind of sex and with whom the kind of sex we desire is very complex. It, these things are complex, guys. Let me tell you, you know, Adam and Joe and I and Neil, we've had to deal with some pretty heavy things the last couple of years in the area of sexuality and, and, and gender. Really complex things that we're kind of like, Lord, we, we need to know how to deal with this. But the complexity and the kind of in, intrinsic power in human sexuality demands that if God's good, he says, here's where the boundaries are. Here's where health is developed. God loves us. And therefore, he gives us these boundaries. And these boundaries have always been countercultural. It's nothing new. Now, we have a different culture now you know, it's, it, but it's interesting, it's different, but then you kind of get to the root of it, it's pretty much the same. The culture in the first century, and Paul wrote this, very male-dominated, male sexuality, objectification of women was the, was the dominant theme. Now in the sexual revolution, women can pretty much choose what they want to do. if, as school as of the culture's concerned, but what do we still have the most prevalent? By far, far more men look at pornography than women. Statistically, some of you do. And what is that? It's pure objectification of women. We still make the same mistakes. We're still in the same kind of sin. And God says it's a standard that it's, it goes beyond him. It, it, it jumps past his good and loving boundaries. Now, he goes on to say, listen, in verses 4 and 5, he says, now, I want let each of you know how to possess his own vessel sanctification and honor not like the Gentiles who don't know God so in other words listen he's saying I expect you as believers as Jesus followers to have a different standard than other people he expects there to be a distinction you know what's not here an exhortation to pick up placards and march politically to tell people why they're wrong in their sexual behavior now I'm not saying there's not ever I'm not saying that's forbidden to do but I'm saying that's not what's here that's not the action that we're commanded to take. The action we're commanded to take is not to, to rant on social media. The action we're called to take is to live different sexually. To have a different sexual standard. To display God's love and how we live. You know what that means for you guys that are single? That means you see sex as holy, therefore you say, Lord, my sexuality is not for myself. It's for a future spouse. And if you choose not to give me a future spouse, it's for your glory. So saying no is to your glory. And he says, look, make sure no one defrauds you in this. No brother take advantage of their brother. You know what that means? The application there means, listen, no friends with benefits among Christians. Do you know what I mean by that? You young people know exactly what I mean by that, don't you? <laughs> friends with benefits. Oh, we're just friends. But, you know, we don't want to sleep around, so we try to, to be blunt, get each other off when we can it's amazing. My, my good friend of mine, who was doing ministry up in Newcastle, he was asked to speak at the CU house party for Newcastle University. Right? This is a bunch of Christians, so he they wanted him to talk about sexuality and dating. And so he goes, "Cool, i want to get some idea of what the the, the, the attitudes are towards sexuality and dating among Christian young people." So he does a survey, and they, one of the questions was, you know, kind of to define where is the standard, where's the where's the line where you've gone too far? You know, is it kissing? Is it heavy kissing? Is it Touching is it heavy petting? Is it some sort of touching bare skin? And basically, yeah, all these kind of you know pretty clear boundaries. You know where the the average boundary ended up being? In bed, naked, but not having intercourse. That was the, what Christians said. Man, really. Guys, listen, I'm not throwing any stones. I'm pretty sure I'm more sexually broken than most of you. Some of you know my testimony. You know what I'm talking about. But I'm saying what God calls us to as believers is to set the standard of saying, no, Lord, we want to walk in holiness. And we don't want to stumble each other in this. You know what it also means? It also means we don't deceive someone who's interested in Christianity and say, you know, it doesn't matter. You can become a Christian and still practice sex outside of marriage. No, no. To follow Jesus is to choose him over our sin, to give up our sin to him. Lord, you paid for it. You've forgiven it. I I need to walk with you and, and keep learning to turn away from it. Now also, listen, ignoring these boundaries is crazy serious. What does he say in verse verses 9 and, uh, verses, sorry, 6 and 7? Where is it? I lost my place. Yeah, he says, Let no one defraud you, your brother, in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all such, who also forewarned you, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but holiness. God is an avenger. This is serious stuff. This is where... People struggle. We can say, yeah, I can see why it's probably not wise. Sex is powerful. It needs to have boundaries. But come on, avenge? Judge? Whether we like it or not or comfortable or not, we, we can't tell this is what the scripture says. Again, let me read to you what, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. Oh, I didn't have it. Sorry, I think I have it. No, I don't have it. Sorry, I don't have it. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, you know, don't be deceived. Those who practice, and he lists all these kind of different sexual uh, immorality, different kinds of sex outside of marriage, all different kinds. He mentions greed as well, and all kinds of other behaviors. He says, don't be deceived. Those who continue to practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't spend eternity with God. We, we, all of us, are called to turn away from those things and say, God, not only forgive me, but I want to walk with you. I want to walk by your standards, and I need your strength to do it. Now, it's interesting because when, when, when God says, you know, look, don't... don't um, Oh, well, I, I know, I missed something. I'm sorry, I apologize. I missed something. I missed this phrase in verse 5, where he says, not in passion of us, the Gentiles. Oh, I'm sorry, in verse 4, where he says, uh, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. That's the phrase I wanted to bring out. This idea of vessels, some, some want to say this has to do with possess your own wife, but that's not how Paul uses it in other places. When Paul uses the word vessel in other places, let me read it to you. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, in a great house... Uh, There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, in other words, cleanses himself from, from dishonor, he will be a vessel, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Now listen. Again, I'm talking to you guys who are Jesus followers. One of the reasons God calls us to walk in sexual holiness so that we can help one another with our sexual brokenness. How can we say to somebody who's considering the claims of Christ but has to leave their, their lover of 10 years or now their marriage partner of 10 years, how, could you say to a a gay man or a lesbian woman who's been in a faith relationship for 10 years to say, listen, the claims of Christ are, are true. You're right to be thinking about who Jesus is. But to follow him, you're going to have to leave your partner because that's what the Bible would command. Could you say that with any sort of credibility, knowing how your life is now, sexually? I told you, you're going to be uncomfortable. But God wants us to live in such a way that we can look to each other. I want to have the kind of credibility, the kind of integrity, the kind of life where I can say to my brother who's addicted to pornography, you can turn from that, bro. There's freedom from that. Let me walk with you. I'm not condemning you. I'm going to walk with you. That I can say to my friends who have same-sex attractions, man, I can only imagine how hard it is to think you may just be celibate your whole life when you do have a sexual desire. I can only imagine how hard it is, but I know that the God who set that standard loves you and will be your all in all. And we want to have you in our family even if you can't have your own family that way. Even if that doesn't end up working out. Do you see why God says, I want you to be a vessel cleansed It's not just for you, it's for others. Run out of time, I gotta jump ahead. The point is this, God's love is what defines his moral authority, but God's love is also what gives boundaries to to human sexuality and is for our good and for the good of others. Now here's the last bit, and when I read these, these next verses, we read them already, but you might go, how does this connect to human sexuality? But this is the last bit. We need to understand that God's love provides for our identity and our relationships. In verse 9, he says, now concerning brotherly love. And he's, in one sense, changing subject; In other sense, he's continuing with the same subject, which is what subject? Your sanctification, the process of God setting you apart for his purposes. He says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In other words, Paul's saying to the Thessalonians who had people in their midst who were still going to these temples and having sex with men and women. Mostly the men of the church would have been doing this. It would have been really rare for a woman to do this. It was mostly men. But still, he's saying, look, you felt like you've had freedom to do this. You've done this before. You're a Christian. I'm saying, no, that standard's got to change. He's saying, I know you want to keep doing this, but you have to not do this anymore. But I also want to encourage you. I really appreciate how you're growing in brotherly love and i want to do the same thing the servants church uh, seriously you guys respond to exhortations to love each other in a way that just blesses my heart as a pastor it really really does you might think it's stupid or silly but you know when we kind of said hey don't forget you know bring and share next week you guys remembered for the first time in like a year but still you remembered it was bring and share, and we had so much food, good food, and it was a blessing to our guests. You loved strangers. And, and I just say, good on you. That's, that's an evidence of God's work in your life. It makes us so blessed to see that. Paul's saying this to the church in Thessalonica. He's saying, we're so blessed by the love that you share for one another. But he says, listen. But he goes on to say in verse Ten, He says, indeed, you also do so toward the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. In other words, you show this to Christians all over the place. But he says, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Now, this is important. Because what Paul's saying here is basically this. He's saying, listen, we grow as Christians. I can't even read my own writing because i got tears in my eyes. He says, we grow as Christians through a family commitment to one another. Do you realize that when you become a a Jesus follower, when you put your faith in what Jesus did for you in his death and resurrection, you say, I want to follow you, Jesus. I believe you're alive and I want to follow you. That God's spirit comes within you. And not only do you now become a child of God, not only you adopt it as one of God's children, you are adopted into this massive goofy, dysfunctional, weird family. (laughs) We are all in one family. Mm -hmm. We are sinners and failures and fools and broken people, but we are a family. And we grow as we commit to one another as that family. And we need to grow, listen, we need to grow this way regardless of how our brokenness manifests itself. Do you know what that means? It means at Servants Church, if we're going to be those who take this book seriously and walk in it, it means that we have to be willing to love people even if they say to you, I know you think I'm a man, but I'm a woman. Now, you might not know how to do that, (laughs) and it is hard, but you need to know that it's what you need to do. God, show me how to walk in love with this person. With a person that says, well, the reason I'm not dating, if I can tell you in confidence, is because I actually don't like women. I like men. And I I don't know how to deal with this as a Christian. We have to be willing to say, all right, God has a standard. Not go, there's a standard. Don't don't cross the line. But we say, let me walk with you in this. We're brothers. We're going to walk together. We're going to love each other. We're going to trust that the Holy Spirit can give us wisdom and discernment to do this. That means when you hear of marriages falling apart, you're not just going, oh, did you hear about (sighs) so-and-so? Then you get right with God. No, but we're, that's my family. That's my family. How, How do I love those people? That's how we grow. James puts it this way. I love the way James gives us some really practical advice in his book. James chapter 5. Here's, what's supposed to, here's what church should look like. James writes, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed Brothers and sisters, if any one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. That phrase, cover a multitude of sins, you know where that comes from? It comes from Proverbs, listen to this, Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. There is not an aspect of sexual brokenness for which Christ did not die, for which love does not cover, for which God is not able to still bring peace and comfort and healing and holiness to that person's life. But he's going to do that as we commit to one another as family. What a friend we have in Jesus, we sang, As if the only time we can approach Jesus is when we're by ourselves and no one's looking. What a friend we have in Jesus, and what a family we have in Jesus, we can go to Him together and say, Lord, help us. We're broken people. We need your grace. Now, He also says this. This is interesting. Because Paul, in the same breath, now talks about some other issues that the Thessalonians struggled with, they struggled with work. Well, a lot of these people probably thought Jesus is going to come back any day, and because Jesus is going to come back any day, let's just quit our jobs and tell people about Jesus and not worry about it. But then they're getting they're getting more and more broke, and then sort of mooching off the wealthier people in the church. And Paul's going, "That's not on. It's not the way it's supposed to work." And so he wants them to work. He, therefore, he says in verse 11, he says that you also aspire to live a quiet life. Don't be causing trouble. Put the placards away. Mind your own business, he says. Don't be busybodies. He says, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Make sure you're actually working for a living. Now again, I'm not trying to condemn anybody who's unemployed. It's not a sin to be unemployed. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying it's a a sin to refuse to work. Not to be unemployed. There's two totally different things. Now what's interesting about this is that Paul's really wanting these guys to see something very practical. He's wanting them to understand, listen you need to think about the responsibilities you have. And one of the best ways we can be a witness to the world out there and to be strengthening one another is just to make sure we're meeting our responsibilities. Again, it goes back to that credibility issue. How can we call people to repentance when we don't walk in repentance? You say to a thief, don't steal, but then you commit benefit fraud. You don't pay your taxes. It doesn't really work, does it? You say, we should love each other as a family, but then you don't work to provide for your family. Or you work and you spend your money on yourself instead of on your family. How can we say, come join the family of God when we don't even seek to be responsible with our own families? So Paul's Paul's saying, "Look, look, there's some practical stuff here that you need to do. But also listen what he says in verse 12. I'm almost done. He says, and that you may walk properly toward those who are outside that you may lack nothing. Now lacking nothing probably here means that you have enough to pay your own way. But I think there's something else spiritual there. You would lack nothing as a witness to them. Those that are outside is a way that Paul describes non-Christians. He doesn't mean like they're not allowed in. He's saying they're, they're on the outside. We want to invite them in into the family of God, into your relationship with Christ. He says something like this in in Colossians chapter 4. Listen. Paul writes, Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. Now we're going to get ready to show you a video. And it's a video, uh, it's a short uh, one question interview with this uh, woman named Rosaria Butterfield. And sh- this woman was a, uh, an English professor and a woman study professor at Syracuse University in New York City, or New York State, a uh, very uh, well respected university. She uh, was the faculty advisor to several LGBT. Uh, groups on campus. She herself was in a committed lesbian relationship for, I think, about a decade. And then she met Jesus. And God did something pretty radical in her. And she's got an amazing, um, amazing testimony. In fact, she's got an amazing ministry. I really encourage you, when the, her name comes on the s- screen, write it down and look up rosariabutterfield.com, her website. And there's a lot of great Q&A in there and stuff. It's awesome stuff. She's a lovely Christian lady. And and the reason I wanted to share this little video, it's only about three and a half minutes long, is is for us to think as Christians. How how do we deal with the LGBT community? How do we relate to as image bearer of God to image bearer of God? (laughs) How do we invite them to the gospel for sinners as sinners who need the gospel? (laughs) You know, we're centers in the gospel, they're centers in the gospel. How do we invite them into that? How do we do this without compromising the standard that God sets for us? And so hopefully this is going to provoke some thoughts. So let's watch this video and then we'll pray.
1: There are a number of things, but, but, but the first is is that people are, are people and um, folks who identify as lesbian or gay, bisexual, transgendered, queer, are um, you know they they're, tr- they're trying to make, make the most sense of their life as they can. They're, they they feed their dogs. They love their children. They they keep they keep good care of their gardens. I mean, people are people, um, and so the the most important thing that Christians can do is not is not buy into this um, this real travesty of personhood that has come to us through the category of sexual orientation, and that is to believe that somehow. People who identify as gay or lesbian are a separate species of people. There's one category of personhood. A person has a soul that will last forever, is an image bearer of a holy God. So even when we meet people who um, are are reflecting that image badly, and and I think it's fair to say that we all would be considered that person, we still must see that person as an image bearer of a holy God. Another thing Christians get really tripped up with, I think, is they focus so much on the Particular sin that that person manifests, or that you think that person manifests, and they, they become then bad listeners. You know, when when I first started reading the Bible and was meeting with Ken Smith, who's the pastor the Lord used in my conversion, he um, he was really clear that he I don't he knew that my being a lesbian was not my biggest sin; being an unbeliever was. So don't get sidetracked into focusing on sins plural about anybody, whether it's your neighbors who identify as LGBT or or, or other neighbors. Um, get to know people well enough to know what's really the issue. You know, everyone has a longing for those things that eternal souls need, and the Word of God is the only food and the person of Jesus Christ is the only friend for all of humanity. So don't get sidetracked with how people are presenting themselves or how they're identifying. That's not helpful and it's not even kind. Um, Another thing you might wanna think about too is that before you focus on the specifics and on the consequences of original sin, a really helpful thing to do is to really just share worldview. When people get together and they talk it, it doesn't hurt to say, "Well, you know, this is why Christians think the way they think. We believe that all people are distorted by original sin. Uh, me and you and everybody else. And we're all distorted differently. But before you get into the particulars of, of actual sins, it really does help to at least have some kind of opportunity to talk about some other things. And there's only one way to do that, and that's to actually have time with people, to not be afraid to linger with your neighbors and to not be afraid to have a particular household that encourages people to come and share their lives.
0: I think you can probably see that this doesn't just apply to LGBT, does it? It's across the board. It, it doesn't matter. This is, this is one of the things that, that is really important. It's, it's so hard because this issue has become such a cultural hot button that has kept us as the church with really engaging with people that need Jesus. And then, and then it's, it's, it's not just the people in the LGBT community that we haven't engaged with. It's that we're afraid to engage with anybody because people are going to ask us those tough questions about things like LGBT, isn't it? When really, what's our worldview? We're sinners. The world is broken by sin, but God so loved the world he sent Jesus to die that we would be forgiven and that this world would be restored upon his return. That's our worldview. The particulars of whatever cultural sin is the soup du jour doesn't make a bit of difference. So, so let's, let's, let's commit this to Jesus right now, amen? And any of you guys here that are, are, are not Christians yet, you're still kind of thinking about this Jesus stuff, I hope this was helpful. I hope you didn't feel like, gosh, you guys are wackier than I thought. I hope you kind of get where we're coming from. And this is definitely one of these, these thought-provoking Sundays where you probably want to talk to somebody. Whoever you came with, ask them the questions that you can. It's good for them. It's good for them to feel a bit trapped by, oh, no, how do I answer? And if they can't find an answer, you guys can find someone here who can. But if you need prayer... Bring the person who talked to somebody right next to you or who, who came with you or you came with and ask for prayer. And if you feel like you can't pray about the thing that's too heavy, again, grab someone who you know who can. One of the things I'm, again, confident about Servants Church is that you guys want to love each other. You want to love people that come in here. And if you feel like you can't, you're going to bring them someone who you feel it can.